global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockford. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we are delighted to have Simon Lacey with us. Simon is currently Senior Lecturer at the University of Adelaide's Institute for International Trade. Prior to joining the Institute, Simon held the position of Vice President Trade Facilitation and Market Access at Huawei Technologies in Shenzhen, China, where he was responsible for monitoring, managing, and mitigating the biggest trade and investment risks facing the company across a dozen of its most important markets internationally. Before joining Huawei, Simon worked in over 30 countries providing training and advice in the areas of trade and investment policy to both sovereigns and the private sector. It was in this capacity that Simon spent four years advising the Indonesian Ministry of Trade on a broad range of issues in connection with the country's membership of ASEAN, the WTO, as well as a number of preferential trade agreements and bilateral investment treaties. Simon is also a member of the University of New South Wales Herbert Smith Freehills China International Business and Economic Law Center. His research and teaching interests encompass trade and investment in the innovation economy, trade and investment policies for development, and the impact of increased geopolitical tensions and disruptive new technologies on trade and investment policies. Simon obtained his bachelor's in laws from the University of Freiburg in Switzerland and also has an LLM from Georgetown in Washington, DC. He is currently completing his PhD at the University of New South Wales. Simon, welcome. Thank you, Fred, good to be here. Simon, you are our first guest from Australia. So we need to ask you whether there are any major legal or economic developments that are taking place in the country that we should know about. Well, I think Australia now is kind of uh, having a bit of a strategic rethink on um, how exposed it is to the Chinese market um, and uh, will kind of going forward be pursuing a, a China plus one or China plus two um, strategy in terms of its uh, supply chain exposure. And that, that across uh, a lot of things, um, food, manufacturing, pharmaceuticals, whatever. And so there's going to be a bit of upheaval uh, in the future. Um, and, and that, you know, that creates opportunities, obviously. And so if I can ask you a follow on question to that, you see the Australian, I'm reading about, uh, you know, Australian, Japanese, India alliances that are forming along with the US as well. Can you comment on on what you're seeing in terms of you know Australian news? How is that being perceived locally? Uh, as as like you said, Australia is gearing up to 
uh, have a plus one, plus two, plus three relationship to kind of uh, for, fend off China? Yeah, look, I think um, I think Australia is definitely going to be uh, looking for allies in the region, and um, and I think uh, you know the whole COVID nineteen thing um, has has been a bit of a wake up call for um, for a lot of countries. I mean, I think countries have also kind of re questioned or rethought their relationship with China a little bit. I think this has been a bit of a black eye for for China and and and. Um, and it's not it's not all China's fault, really. But I mean, I think, uh, you know, China just hasn't, um, you know, they're, they're, the Chinese are very thin skinned and, and they haven't really reacted that well to some of the criticism that's been leveled towards them. And so they've kind of lashed out a little bit. And, and, uh, and, and you know, we've seen developments on the, the Indian Chinese border as well. And so India is really starting to, to rethink its relationship to China. And so I think a lot of countries in the region are locking shoulders um, to kind of uh, create a unified um, kind of uh, front against um, what they perceive to be, uh, you know, negative externalities coming from China, particularly um economic coercion or, or some forms of aggression. But on the other hand, you have to realize that, you know, most economies in the region are, are deeply interlinked with China and their, their businesses have benefited enormously from, from, from that reality. And that includes Australia, that includes Japan. So I wouldn't really say it's a question of decoupling, but it's just a question of, um, uh, you know, auditing your your security and 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 supply chain relationships and and a few other things. Simon, sticking with China for for a little bit and talking perhaps a little bit more about perceptions of of China within Australia. Um, given that, uh, and I think this is true for for both uh, both of us, uh, both both Jonathan and, and me. Um, as China watchers, most probably of the Australia-related news that we get on our on our Twitter feeds have to do with with China in one way or another, um, and maybe that in itself um, accounts for for a certain um, for for a certain flavor in in some in, in terms of the articles that 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 cross at least my path. Um, but there are, there are stories that, that, um, that I read about Chinese interference or, or alleged Chinese interference in uh, Australian universities and local governments. Could you talk a little bit about this? Um, and especially taking into account that you worked in China, so you have a, a wider perspective uh, on the topic than the average Australian. I mean, how, how, how much of this is is simply a certain slant in the in the news that 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 we're getting over here, and how much of it is is actually reflecting uh, real trends? Yeah, look, I think it, it's very healthy to um, maintain a certain sense of skepticism towards what you read, um, particularly in the mainstream media. It's always good to be open to sort of counter narratives. Um, or, or, you know, dissenting opinions or whatever you want to call them. Um, I mean, I, when I, you know, I, I just came back to Australia after 30 years abroad. And one of the first things that really hit me, uh, coming back here when I was walking through, you know, department stores and stuff was just how everything here 
is is made in China and just how deeply interlinked um, the economies are and, and how, how great that has been for for Australia and, and for consumers the world over. But I mean if you look at um, if you look at the media coverage, uh, it does tend to be um, predominantly negative. And um, there's this kind of one narrative that seems to dominate, uh, which is fairly sensationalist, uh, fairly conspiratorial, um, and 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 that's true in the the Western media. I'm sorry, in the U.S. media as well. I mean, I just before um, I came on online this morning for this interview, I did check, you know, um, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, kind of the stories they were running on China, and there's nothing really positive there. I mean, it's all about Hong Kong, the national security law. Uh, about technological decoupling. There's nothing positive there. And there is good news coming out of China. There's a lot of good news coming out of China. I mean, it's a big country. Um, but there, there are no Western media outlets really covering that. So, for example, there's a lot of really good stuff happening in China uh, on, on the circular economy, for example, right? The Chinese are really making great strides there. Um, and, and nobody covers that. And, and, and the only good news coming out of China is really from... Xinhua or CCTV, and of course we don't we don't really trust that stuff because we know that it's it's Chinese government propaganda, and and I you know I was talking to a guy um, one of, one of my good friends is a guy called Dan Strumpf who uh, who works for the Wall Street Journal in in Hong Kong, and 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 I was telling him you know um, I think we were talking about the fact that all of these U.S. Uh, journalists just got expelled from. From China, and um, and and so you know we were commiserating a little bit with them, but but then when I when I went to look at kind of the history of the stories that they've been filing, predominantly negative, and and so I'm thinking, well, you know, if these guys never write anything positive about China, of course the Chinese government is going to think twice about renewing their visas, and so I, I wonder if it's a problem with the reporters or if it's actually. There are news editors that just spike any story that doesn't fit in with the accepted narrative or, or how it works. But they're, they're definitely, um, we're definitely getting a very negative slant to all of the stories coming out of China if we're, if we're just sticking with um, the, the, main, the mainstream media. You know, I mean, the, using the term mainstream media makes me sound like Donald Trump. Um, who also actually gets a, a pretty bad rap in, in the mainstream media, um, predominantly negative. But um, but yeah, that, that's that's not my intention. Um, I, I just think you need to you need to uh, look a little bit more broadly uh, in terms of sources of information if you really want to understand a place as complex as, as China. And that, of course, is a great segue into what I wanted to ask you about next, which is. Uh, tell us about Huawei. I mean, it, it uh, as an outsider, as a like Fred said, as a as a serious China follower, I'm very intrigued into uh, what you did there, how you were um, how you were accepted as an outsider, whether you had certain things uh, you felt you had to deal with that that maybe your coworkers didn't, or maybe you had it easier than your coworkers did. I'm uh, you know, I mean, I, I want the good, bad, and the ugly. Right. Look, I think um, I, I have to admit that that. Huawei was probably the the high point of my career. I mean, it was just really interesting work. Um, up until then, uh, most of my work had been done um, either in think tanks, academia, or I mean, I did a lot of work, um, kind of advising and training governments in developing countries uh, about 
and WTO and, and, and international trade negotiations and FTA negotiations and these sort of things. But, you know, Huawei was really the first time since, um, since after I graduated law school and was working in a law firm in Zurich, it was really the first time that I'd spent um, any time in the, in the private sector. And, and so it was really interesting having a look at um, how all of these issues were perceived and, and acted upon um, by, by a big private sector multinational in the technology space. Um, and, and, and so I think, um, I mean, look, the good, the bad and the ugly, I mean, that, that could take a few hours, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I mean, the, I worked in a team, uh, of, of trade experts, um, which has since actually been disbanded, um, which, which I find really incredible. Um, and I'd already taken the decision to leave, um, before that decision uh, was made to disband the, the team of trade experts. But the team was really assembled um, back in about 2000, I want to say 13, 14, probably 2014. I joined in 2015. The team of trade experts was assembled um, because Huawei had found itself on the wrong side of a couple of anti-dumping and countervailing duty uh, investigations in the US. And so... Uh, sorry, in the EU. And so it, it felt that it, it needed to have a little bit more expertise in-house to manage this. Uh, and so they put together a team. And when I was there, the team actually reached its highest number of people. We were six. So we were six foreigners, six Chinese. Um, and, um, and you know, it was, it was a bit of a challenge getting any traction on, on our issues because management, in fact, nobody really understood Outside of what we were doing, nobody really understood. Even our, even um, the the Chinese guys that we were reporting to directly, didn't really understand what uh, what it was we were doing and why it was important. Um, unless there was a case, uh, unless there was an open case uh, against uh, Huawei in terms of an anti-dumping action, um, they really they really didn't see where the trade team added a lot of value. And so that was, that was a little bit frustrating, but I mean, you know, you, you kind of learn to, to roll with the punches and, and add value where you can. Um, we, we had an annual exercise that we did, which was the trade risk map. So we would look at sort of six to 12 countries and we would, we would um, do some reporting on where we saw the biggest risks over the next sort of two, one to two years um, coming from from both a trade and investment policy uh, and and legislative um, uh, perspective, and that was very interesting work. I took over that work in two thousand sixteen, um, and and that was that was really uh, interesting. In in terms of the challenges, I mean, um, you know, when when you're a Westerner in a big Chinese firm like that, um, you're really at a disadvantage in terms of access to the information flow. You've got to you've got to have good contacts. You've got to have uh, trusted relations with with a few Chinese colleagues who will kind of tell you what's really going on in the firm. I was very lucky; I had that, but it, it took me about a year and a half to get to that point um, with my Chinese colleagues. I found um, that in 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 a Western environment, if you join a team. Um, you know, depending on the atmosphere in the company, it will be assumed, people will assume that they can trust you until you prove 
that you're not trustworthy. But in, in, in a Chinese context, that was, it was the opposite. Um, you know, it was assumed that you couldn't be trusted until, until you proved that, that you could. Um, which, you know, is fair enough. It's just another way of looking at things, I guess, another way of approaching relationships. But, um, but once I earned that trust, um, you know, my Chinese colleagues were really, were really great and, and really, uh, supported me and, 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 uh, you know, got my back when, whenever I needed it. But yeah, it was a great, it was a great experience. Uh, you know, I was there about almost five years and I, I felt that at, at that point it had kind of added, um, I'd, I'd kind of learned enough and it had add, added, a, you know, a lot of value to, to my career. Uh, but it was time to, it was time to move on. What you just said now about people assuming that you cannot be trusted, right? How that um, inverted order of things, as opposed to to the way we typically see things, that that certainly certainly resonates, um, especially with with my my first experience working in a in a Chinese uh, company, which. Um, was not my first working experience in, in China, right? And that happened after after a couple of years. Um, certainly, I think we could have a an entire episode on on working in China and having having a panel of, of folks who have had that experience. Um, but moving on, I know that you've spent some quality time in in Indonesia, as as we described in the intro. Uh, that is a country that is of, of great interest to, to both of us, um, both um, to Jonathan and, 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 and to me. Um, and, and we'd certainly like to have uh, someone from Indonesia uh, on the show before, before too long. Um, however, could you please tell us uh, a little bit more about, about your experience and more specifically, what are your views on the country's prospects? I, I consider... Indonesia to be one of the greatest discoveries that I made during my time in Asia. I, I didn't get around to visiting until the the latter years of, of my time over there. And I was very surprised. It, 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 it is one of those places where my expectations did not align with, uh, with what I ended up seeing. And, and, and in a, in a good way, it, it turned out to be uh, you know, my expectations were were um, exceeded considerably. So I, I I'm not. An, I mean, I, I don't know very much about the country, but based on what I do know, I um, let's just say I'm at the very least um, very very curious about what will happen and somewhat optimistic about what could be accomplished. But I'd love to have the views of someone who actually knows what he's talking about on this. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a similar experience to you with Indonesia. I mean, I, I'd been living in Switzerland about 15 years uh, in 2004, 2005, and I kind of knew that I was done with Switzerland. I was done with Europe and I, I wanted to go to Asia. I knew Asia was where I wanted to be. I'd already done a bunch of work there. I'd done some work in Taiwan. I'd done some work in Vietnam, um, Singapore, loved Singapore. Um, and, uh, but Indonesia never really came up. I mean, I never really thought about Indonesia as a place to, to move to or to work in or whatever. So I ended up, I ended up moving to Singapore, um, and, and then straight away getting sucked into a bunch of, uh, 
trade-related technical assistance work, USAID-funded work in, in Indonesia, and was also blown away by just how much potential the, co- the country had and just how amazing it was to live there um, as an experience. You know, it, it's funny, In nine, I, I came across this paper written by Richard Nixon, of all people, I think it's in Foreign Policy, in 1968. And in 1968, Richard Nixon, before he became president, was arguing that, you know, we're wasting our time here in Vietnam, we should be in Indonesia. And, um, and, and I read that only like two years ago or something, and I, I just thought, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And, um, and, and so Indonesia was off a lot of people's radar. I don't think Nixon got a lot of traction with that. Um, but, but Indonesia was just off a lot of people's radar, um, but, you know, the thing you, you have to remember about Indonesia, though, is I think there's a saying about Brazil, which goes that Brazil is the country of tomorrow and always will be. And, you know, you could say the same thing about Indonesia. I mean, Indonesia is a place that will never get its act together, I think. I think, in any major way. I mean, it has the potential to be uh, a regional superpower just in terms of um, the the population size and the natural resources and the sheer size of the country, but it, it just doesn't lack the coherency or the unified vision. Um, I mean, it's just basically a, a random collection of islands that were thrown together that encompasses different ethnic groups, different linguistic groups, uh, thrown together under this notion of Panchasilla uh, University in, in uh, sorry, what is it? Um, unity and diversity. And, uh, and um, I'd be really surprised if, if it makes any um, progress uh, you know, up the uh, value chain uh, in terms of economic sophistication uh, anytime soon. That You know, this is something they've been trying to do for, for many decades and, and Vietnam has left them in the dust. Uh, Thailand is way ahead of them. Um, so, look, I mean, I love Indonesia. I think it's a great place. I, I, I really love the people. They're super friendly uh, and they're smart. They're just really smart people. But... Um, I think there are just too many obstacles in their way for them really to um, uh, match uh, any of the any of the impressive um, bootstrapping up the, the value chain that we've seen in places like Vietnam or even Thailand. So I'd love to ask you a question now, since you spent a lot of time uh, in Southeast Asia. If you were to say, give us your back of the envelope ranking of countries other than China, let's say leave out China, Japan, and South Korea. You, do you want to give us your top five on, on order of kind of promise or like they've been able to execute very well on, like you said about Vietnam, been able to execute very well on, uh, on improving their country from where they were two or three decades ago? Yeah, look, I mean, I think, um, I, I think what really helps is to have um, a very healthy sense of paranoia. And, and so, you know, if you look at why Singapore developed, Singapore was, the, you know, this small city-state that had some very big uh, and very antagonistic neighbours. Um, first of all, Malaysia, but actually much more importantly, uh, Indonesia. I mean, people forget that um, 
Singaporean troops actually fired on and killed Indonesian troops um, as 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 recently as the 1970s in in Johor, um, just across the the causeway. And and so you know Singapore from from the moment it was founded was kind of in a race to to obtain um, military, but but predominantly economic security because it understood that you know uh, it wouldn't have mili- military security unless it had economic security. So Singapore's done a really good job. I mean, um, in in Taiwan as well. Uh, if you look at the the development of Taiwan, um, you know, Chiang Kai Shek, who was famously, um, uh, you know, the regime of Chiang Kai Shek was famously corrupt and incompetent. Um, they they basically decided to get their act together um, back in the the seventies and eighties um, because they realized unless um, unless they could become much stronger economically, but also unless they could embrace democratic values, um, there's no way that the Americans would be riding to their rescue if, uh, if China decided to grab them. Um, so there's, there's, there's Taiwan. There, there's a really good book about this called um, How Asia Works by a guy called Joe Studwell, and he, he kind of goes through what has worked and what has not worked uh, in Asia, and so he compares he compares Korea and Indonesia, the Philippines and um, Taiwan and, and and other you know places that worked. He also has a chapter on China. He looks at Korea, and um, and and so, but he's just looking at the economics of it. Um, and 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 basically, you need to um, you know you need to start with agriculture, and and then you need to to have some very sensible um, reforms in in agriculture, uh, including land reform, which is in, incredibly difficult. But then you also have to invest in things like extension services, and 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 really create um, uh, economically viable. Um, uh, agricultural sector, and then after that, you need to go into manufacturing. And manufacturing is all about um, subjecting your com- your companies to export discipline. Because if they can't export, then they shouldn't receive any state support or any subsidies. And then finally, Joe Studwell in this book he looks at um, finance, and and he says, you know, the last thing you should be doing is is freeing your capital account or opening um, your financial markets to international flows. You need to keep your cash in the country, and you need to make it support the 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 goals of um, you know boosting your agricultural as well as your your manufacturing capacity. So that's the economic case. So if you look at who's achieved that, um, you know, you've got got success stories like like Korea, like China, like Japan. Um, But, um, you know, I think think Thailand has done done quite well um, because it's been open to a lot of FDI from from places like Japan and and Korea, so having having an open investment environment has has helped them uh, a lot. Um, and and it's not only about having an open investment environment, but it's also about having you know some degree of regulatory governance that allows for predictability. Uh, and and I think. Thailand has done has done a very good job of that. Where Indonesia has has sort of fallen down uh, a bit, but I mean the real success story is probably Vietnam. And Vietnam, um, Vietnam had you know this healthy paranoia that the Chinese were going to march across their border again, uh, and they needed they needed to have economic strength, and so 
they've they've really bootstrapped their way up to um, they've you know they've overtaken uh, many of their peers in a in ASEAN that started much later and turned themselves into you know a manufacturing economy. Simon, you you bring up this idea of of what works and what doesn't work, and that reminds me of some of what I've seen you write about and uh, on LinkedIn comments that you've made. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm going from memory here. So, so I'm going to paraphrase, but it, um, for, from what I recall, you, you've been somewhat critical of, of, um, let, let's say the, the stalling of market, uh, economic reform in China and, and some of the, the slide back towards more, um, state led models. I, I, I could be, well, so so why don't we do this? Why don't you first uh, clarify if if in fact those are those are views that you have, and maybe if 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 so, you could maybe talk a little bit about that and some of the dangers that might lie ahead for China if if they don't get back on on a track of of um, of reform. Right. So look, I mean, my my views there are fairly non ideological. I mean, I think um, you know in in the in the U.S. Uh, you know, you've got organizations like the Heritage Foundation and you've got this kind of, you've got this kind of religious obsession with, um, with market capitalism uh, and, and, you know, you tend to overlook a lot of its flaws. Whereas in, you know, other places like China, you've got this very heavy handed state. And I think, um, I think, you know, you just need to recognize that there is a very important role for the state uh, in markets. And it's not actually just oversight. Um, it, it's also um, to provide public goods and, um, and to provide investment where there's no kind of market case for doing so. And so if you look at how the US technology sector started, it was actually fairly state-led. So if you look at... Um, in what happened in the US back in the 1950s, there was this sort of Sputnik moment, which was a real wake up call for the US in its race um, with, uh, you know, against the Soviet Union for technological supremacy and, and getting into space. Um, and, and there was massive investment done uh, in the semiconductor industries and in aerospace. Um, and, and that really kind of gave the U.S. its, its edge technologically and then that was just built, uh, built upon over, you know, succeeding decades. Um, in, in China, the, the Chinese are actually trying to replicate this experience. I mean, the Chinese, what you have to understand is the Chinese um, Communist Party cadres, they spend a lot of time in, uh, in these party schools kind of studying the lessons of history. Now, of course, they they come at they come at it with their own um, kind of skewered perspective, um, as we all do when we look back at, at history and we sort of interpret it in in light of you know our our realities and our prejudices. Um, but but you know the the Chinese look at how America developed and how they 
developed their technological sector and they see that there was a lot of state involvement. Um, despite, you know, statements by guys like Bill Gates who says that, you know, it was a miracle of the private sector, it was all private sector led. That's just not true. You go back and you look at the history books uh, and, and you'll see that um, there was a lot of state intervention in, in, in getting um, the US technology sector to where it is now. So the Chinese have looked at that and they're like, okay, well, we need to sort of replicate that. And, and the problem there is that if you look at all of the really breakthrough innovation that's happened in China, um, it's happened in the Chinese private sector. And Huawei is probably the biz biggest example. Um, but you've also got firms like Tencent. Uh, you've got firms like Alibaba. You've got, you've got you know, predominantly private sector firms who are really at the cutting edge um, in China technologically. And, and the firms that are not cutting it uh, technologically, like the ones that are building their high-speed trains um, and who are trying to catch up to the U.S. in things like avionics and stuff, also semiconductors, they're just not cutting it um, because I, I, you know, you'd have to go and, and, and really look at why, but my, my sense is that they just um, don't have the pressure that competing uh, in a very contestable market imposes upon them. So, you know, one of the reasons why Huawei was so innovative is because it was starting uh, at such a low point and, and, and trying to take on established market leaders like Lucent and, and Nokia and Ericsson on their own home markets, particularly in Europe. Um, and, and so that, that really forced uh, Huawei to up its game. I mean, I, you know, I can speak from, from the perspective of Huawei because I, I worked there for five years and I can really see um, what the driving force between some of their technological breakthroughs were. And so um, I, I would say... Um, the, the state has, uh, has an important role, um, but what we've seen in China is that it has, especially since Xi, but even, even kind of since really 2006, you've seen um, a steady kind of encroachment on, on the private sector in, in China. And I think, you know, you've seen this reassertion of um, party first um, government first, government leads, the private sector follows. And, and that ultimately uh, is going to be very unhealthy for China. And it just, uh, it just makes, um, it just creates a lot of bad blood uh, on, on third markets where Chinese firms are competing. You know, I spent a lot of time talking to policymakers in the EU when I was at Huawei and, and they're very, um, they're very distrustful of, of Chinese firms because they they see it, they see them as a front for um, dominance uh, by by uh, China in in a whole bunch of technologies that are really important for for the economy and where European as well as American firms compete against China on on their home markets and on third country markets. Simon, you recently made the jump to academia. Um, curious what that move has been like. Uh, you know why you made the decision and ultimately how, uh, how you're looking to make your mark there. Okay. So, um, yeah, look, I, uh, I had been in academia before I joined Huawei. I was running a think tank, um, in Jakarta, um, on, on trade and investment. And then, um, I was actually planning on coming back to Australia and writing a PhD at UNSW where I am now university of new South Wales. 
And um, and then I got a call from a headhunter in in Guangzhou uh, who who recruits for Huawei, and and he um, he kind of asked if I'd I'd be interested in taking up this role. And at first, I wasn't really that interested, but the more he talked about it, and the more I saw what kind of work it would be, I thought that that does sound really interesting. So I kind of put off the plan to come back to Australia and. Um, and get into academia for a few years, and and now this is kind of where I've ended up. So I think um, it, you know, it has some advantages vis-a-vis working um, in in the private sector. So I, I did a I did quite a bit of writing when I was at Huawei, um, and and I wrote a, a, a company white paper on trade and investment rules for the digital economy back in two thousand sixteen seventeen, and then I, I I wrote some other stuff. Um, for the for the company, but but you know the the problem was that uh, you know I said before that nobody in the company really understood what what it was we were doing, and the problem that I had at Huawei was there was this incredibly long process of uh, internal consultation, getting people to sign off on what it was I was writing, and getting stuff cleared for publication. The guys in the international media department didn't really understand why the, what we were talking about was important and why we should be publishing on it. We needed to focus on cybersecurity and other issues. Um, and, and so it was really hard getting, getting any traction and it was really hard getting stuff approved for publication when nobody internally understood what it was really about. And so that's, that's a problem I don't have in academia, obviously. I mean, you know, we still have some semblance of academic freedom um, and even though you know universities are basically corporations these days, um, governed by the profit motive as much as, as as any other part of the economy, but I mean we still have some notion of academic freedom, and so I can I can really publish what I want without asking you know for permission. Uh, but if I if I publish anything that kind of goes against the the prevailing narrative. Um, I need to make sure I have my facts straight because then, you know, I might, I might get challenged on something. So, so that, that's been very refreshing. Um, and, uh, and obviously, um, the, the cultural context here is very different, um, than, than China. I mean, this is a, 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 a cultural context that I understand very well because I, I spent, you know, some formative years in Australia, I spent about 10 years in Australia growing up. And, and so, you know, Australia is something that I understand quite well. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, I, I think the challenge, the challenge in academia is, is maintaining visibility and maintaining, um, relevance. Uh, whereas, you know, when you work for a multinational like Huawei, which is, you know, in the newspapers every day for both the wrong and the right reasons, um, relevance is not a problem. You know, you show up at a, a, at a meeting or an event and you're from Huawei and people are like, oh, wow, let's hear what this guy has to say. Um, and that's a, that's a little bit different in, in academia, you know, so you have to make sure you're, you stay visible and, and, and you have to make sure you stay relevant by, by publishing and writing and researching on things that people care about. Simon, before we wrap things up, I'd like to ask you um, for recommendations uh, based on what you're reading or, or watching or what you have been listening to over the past uh, few weeks? There's a guy called Peter Zaihan um, who I think is based in 
somewhere in Colorado. Um, I used to work for Stratfor, and he's written a bunch of books, one of which is called, I think his famous book was The Accidental Superpower. That really got him noticed a few years ago. Then he wrote something called The Absent Superpower two years later, and um, he's just come out recently with a book called Disunited Nations. So Peter Zihan has a really interesting take on everything. It's a bit of a counter-narrative. He doesn't see China as a threat, for example. Um, he, he, you know, in the medium to long term, he sees China as basically uh, a basket case. Um, but his his whole thesis is that you know the 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 international order that we've had since the Second World War uh, is in a is in the process of collapse. Um, and that, that's very that's very interesting. I don't agree with everything that he says, but I, I think he's got some really interesting analysis and some interesting arguments. So I would recommend Disunited Nations from Peter Zihan. Um, there's another really good book um, by two Wall Street Journal reporters. Um, is it Superpower Showdown? Yeah, that's just come out. That's Bob Davis, Ling Ling Wei. Um, that's got some really great insights into how um, the Trump administration managed a relationship with China over the last few years, but also how that relationship evolved over sort of the last 30 years since the Trump administration. So Superpower Showdown is, is really good. Um, and then... Um, Look, I think, I think the most influential book of the decade for me um, has been a book that nobody has really heard of called America Inc. by Linda Weiss. And you spell that W-E-I-S-S. -S. And Linda Weiss is actually an academic at the University of Sydney. And she is, she's the one that has really gone back and documented how um, the U.S. Uh, technology industry got started um, back to Sputnik. And um, I, there's another book called The Entrepreneurial State um, by a woman who's, whose name I can never pronounce. And, and, and she covers a lot of the same ground as Linda Weiss. And she actually made it onto the Financial Times reading list or something. So a lot of people have heard of this book, The Entrepreneurial State, and have read that. Um, but uh, less so this book by Linda Weiss, which is called America, Inc., and um, and I would really recommend um, I would really recommend that. Yeah, the entrepre the entrepreneurial state is written by a woman called Mariana uh, Mazzucato, and it's quite well known. But the better book is actually America Inc. by Linda Weiss, um, and uh, and it's actually much harder to read as well because it's it's really an academic tome, but um, but it's really it really kind of opens your eyes on on just how interlinked the US private sector is with the American kind of military industrial complex, which is, which is huge. I mean, people just don't realize um, how intertwined those two economies are. Anyway, uh, those would be my like top three, I guess. Jonathan, I know you'll want to say something about uh, Peter Sehan, but also please share with us your, your own recommendations. My two recommendations for this week are uh, kind of hit both ends of the political spectrum because on one side we have James Comey's A Higher Loyalty about his time in the Trump administration. And then on the other side, we have John Bolton's book, The Room Where It Happened. 
and uh, they were both very intimately involved with uh, with the dealings of the Trump administration. It's very for me. It's very fun. It's kind of a I'm, I don't really like uh, reality TV shows, but I do like uh, reality political books. And so uh, I recommend both of those kind of as counterweights to each other. I'm still working my way through John Bolton's book, but certainly I'm enjoying um, and, you know, everything, everything in every kind of book like this, a tell all book, uh, you take it with a grain of salt because, you know, the author is is to some degree posturing uh, their their representation of the facts and, and how they acted in a, in a situation. So um, but certainly uh, very interesting reads. Fred, how about you for this week? Well, I have two recommendations. The first one is actually um, a recommendation that was supposed to be in one of our earlier shows and just just didn't make it onto the final version. But I I, I took a look after after hearing about it and thought it was actually um, a very good read. So it, it's in, in keeping with the uh, with the theme that Jonathan's been reading about. So this is a an article from the New Yorker. What Fiona Hill learned in the White House, and it is a pretty detailed piece on what working in the in the White House was like for for Fiona Hill in particular, but of course with with broader um, lessons, if you will, on on what that experience is or has been for for a lot of people, and also um, provide some insight into into what what the uh, the White House is like these days. So that's um, you can find it on the website. Um, the The author is Adam Entus. I probably butchered that, but uh, published on the on June twenty second of this year. And then the second recommendation it's a uh, something more lighthearted. One of the things that I've been doing um, over the past uh, few months, I've been I've found myself watching travel videos, and probably part of that is a way of um, making up for all the, for all the actual trips that are, that are not taking place. Uh, there's, there's a lot of good stuff out there, but just, um, uh, one in particular that, that I'd like to single out and, and also serve as a sort of general placeholder for the entire genre. Um, there's a guy called, uh, Noel Phillips and he does have a focus on, on aviation, which, which I enjoy. Um, but a lot of what he does um, by, by necessity involves travel. And um, I, I find there, there's just something about it. I, the guy has a certain style, um, very sort of homely uh, character, but, it, but it, it makes for very relaxing um, watching. And his last few videos – they're they're very timely because it, it 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 he has to travel in the midst of all this so so there's there's uh some of that um frustration that the traveler feels uh because of of, of, of all the travel restrictions um but overall overall it's 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 entertaining he's he's been putting out some some good content uh, uh you know involving travel in the uh in the covid 19 era um and that will YouTube will probably give you some some other recommendations of, of good things. So that's the second one, Noel Phillips and his. Um, I think I think the name of it, of the series is uh, In Flight Video or something like that. So that's it for me, uh, Simon. I'd like to once again thank you for 
being with us today. Really, really enjoyed uh, today's conversation. And um, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to, to do it again before too long. Thank you, guys. It was good talking to you. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue to discuss developments in global law and business. And tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Thank you.